Welcome to the Flourishing After Addiction podcast. I'm Carl Eric Fisher, an addiction psychiatrist, bioethicist, and person in recovery. In this podcast, I'm exploring addiction and recovery through deep dive interviews with people who are working toward flourishing after addiction. Scientific researchers, artists and writers, clinicians, spiritual teachers, activists, people with lived experience, generally people who are working on how to change and grow or helping others to do so. Why? My goal is to learn from their experience and wisdom, and then to share the lessons that are accessible and focused on flourishing and change. I believe addiction is one of the most fascinating topics in all of psychiatry, philosophy, and human life, one that has tremendous potential to help all of us better understand how to flourish. If this sounds interesting to you, head over to my website, where I have other resources and materials about addiction and recovery. Sign up for my newsletter, and I will regularly send you information about books, research papers, and all the things I'm studying and exploring. Also, if you sign up for that newsletter, you'll get a free guide I made about the many pathways to recovery. The email list is the only way to get several of those resources and newsletters, so please do sign up to be in touch. You can find all of that at carlericfisher.com. Today, it's my great pleasure to be speaking with Dr. Ayana Jordan, MD, PhD a renowned expert in addiction and other mental health conditions in underserved populations. She's the newly appointed Barbara Wilson Endowed Associate Professor of Psychiatry in the Department of Psychiatry at NYU, and she has appointments and leadership positions all across the board in their Department of Population Health, NYU's Institute for Excellence in Health Equity. Let me read one of the key messages from her bio. The fundamental message of equity and inclusion has informed her research, clinical work, and leadership duties at NYU and beyond. She got her MD-PhD at Albert Einstein, and then while training in the South Bronx, she became passionate about serving racial and ethnic minoritized populations, as we'll discuss more in the interview. And also, I think of particular interest to many of you, she has a longstanding interest in integrating spirituality and addiction treatment while simultaneously respecting people's values and beliefs and doing so in a responsible and effective way. So she went on to do her general adult psychiatry residency at Yale University, served as chief president, and since then she's published dozens of peer-reviewed articles and numerous top-tier medical publications, serves on multiple editorial boards, many other awards and accolades. She's a thought leader who has given a wide range of keynote presentations nationally and internationally, and that's actually how we met. We were both presenting at a specialized academic conference at Harvard. I was really excited because I had long been following her fantastic work. We hit it off immediately, and I was really excited to dig in and learn more about her important work and to share it with you. There's so much good stuff in this episode. She shared about her personal history of substance use disorder in her family, particularly her father, how that has taught her and inspired her to help people better engage in recovery pathways. We talk more about her research, including on integrating spirituality with addiction treatment and what that tells us about addiction, how that triangulates back on how we think about addiction in the first place. We tackle this controversial question, why do you have to pray about something that we call a mental health condition? And we also talk about her work on racial justice, health equity, and how she does that in a systematic and rigorous way, and the lessons of how racism redounds to harm us all. Across these varied topics, I think it's an important conversation about some of the key issues in addiction treatment and recovery today. So I really hope you enjoy. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Ayana Jordan. All right. I am here with Dr. Ayana Jordan. Ayana, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. I am so excited to be here. And finally, we get to sit down and have a conversation. I like to start with a bit of the personal. So tell me about how you became passionate about what you are passionate about, about health equity and serving minority populations and addiction medicine and psychiatry. Yeah, thank you for that, because this is probably something that I have been thinking about more lately, given, you know, my father is in a very compromised state as a result of his substance use. So my dad has a, well, had, he, he everything is controlled by the nursing facility at this point, but my dad had a really bad alcohol use disorder and unfortunately wasn't able to establish really long-term recovery and has had really devastating outcomes in terms of a massive stroke. And now he's total care from being very independent. So anyway, a lot of introspection because 
I did not start off in addiction medicine at all. I did not start off in wanting to pursue psychiatry. And so I think I was kind of drawn to this because of the people in my life that were really struggling with substance use. And now I'm realizing more and more, it's my attempt to think about studying ways that they might have been able to engage in this treatment system recovery kind of pathway in ways that were not readily accessible to them, even though they tried. So I think ultimately like an existential question, that's probably what I'm doing to like save my father. But I have been around many people who have been impacted. I lost my uncle from a cocaine overdose about 15 years ago at this point. My other uncle, these are my dad's siblings. He ended up dying by suicide, but really was tormented with the opioid addiction that really happened during the Vietnam War and was unable to really get himself 100% okay. Although religion really helped him for a lot of years and then the, the pandemic kind of took a toll. But anyway, I've had these stories in my life. So when I first started medicine, I was really focused on HIV and wanted to be an infectious disease doc because so many people have been really devastated by obviously HIV before my time kind of in the 80s, but really thinking about how many folks were left out of the kind of treatment milieu. And really that was the focus on racial and ethnic minoritized folks. How can I reach folks that grew up with me in the Hill District in Pittsburgh that were needing access to HIV medication, but didn't feel empowered to do so. And so that really helped me kind of, I think, focus on minorities, but I, I thought it was going to be an infectious disease doc. Very long story short, when I got to New York City, I was at Albert Einstein College of Medicine of Yeshiva University, and I did an MD-PhD program there. And I said, you know, my, my PhD work was all in like how does the immune system affect our ability to confer suppression, to stop viruses, things like that? Anywho, I had a rotation in the South Bronx and it was my psychiatry rotation. And I had never, I'll tell you, like I had never, ever, ever. And for the listeners, like I'm doing all these hand gestures, but you can't, can't <laughs> see me that I just could not believe the level of poverty that I witnessed in the South Bronx. And this was in the 21st century. I was taken aback because it's like, I lived in this country all of my life, born and raised in Pittsburgh, hashtag shout out to the Steelers. And I never saw anything like this. And then when I went into the psychiatric unit, it was an inpatient unit and all the folks were Puerto Rican, mostly, I mean, there were some other, you know, ethnicities, but most of the folks were Puerto Rican and all of the docs were white. And I'll never forget, I was sitting at a family meeting with one of the psychiatrists and it was like they were, the family and the psychiatrists was like talking past one another. And there was no sense of like true cultural understanding before like structural determinants was cool or social determinants. And I thought to myself, I think I can do this better, you know, and I think I can not in a very narcissistic way, but like, I think I can integrate culture and family to really think through best ways to take care of folks. So anyhow, that really started my love for kind of psychiatry. I was so scared. I was like, all this time my career was in infectious disease and immunology. And I was like, how am I going to tell people that I'm now going to become a psychiatrist and work with poor folks? Like, that was not the plan. And then people in my family were like, is a psychiatrist even a real doctor? You know, there's a lot of stigma. So, yeah, I mean, it was a tough kind of transition. But through my own kind of therapy, through my divorce in medical school, which is a whole nother story, you have to have me on. But anyway, <laughs> that kind of uh, trauma, I see it as a trauma in my early 20s. I was introduced to therapy for the first time in my life. And that relationship 
with my doctor, Dr. Cabot, I always remember her really helped to allow me to work on a, pursue a path that I love. And that was psychiatry. I love getting to know people's stories. I love being able to integrate medicine and figuring out how we could help people with serious mental illness, but also really incorporating cultural understanding in our treatment planning. So that kind of set me off on psychiatry and I didn't come to addiction until later in my psychiatric training. Again, being constantly impacted by people in my family who had substance use disorders. But then seeing the stigma within medicine for my own colleagues, like, you know, I would take a consult and doctors would say, I don't want to see that addict, or here's a repeat offender, or he's an alcoholic discharge. And I'm like, but you didn't even see the patient. So that, I think, underscore for me, like, no, I'm going to take care of these folks and I'm going to do all that I can in terms of school training to get what I know. But then I hooked up with this whole field of people with lived experience. And I was like, oh, these are my peeps because they said, we're going to school you, Dr. Jordan. You think you know, but you really have no idea. And so that just really solidified my love for culture, my upbringing and kind of my spiritual practice, but then also thinking about medicine and tying them all and then really using my PhD that I had in the discovery of implementation science. How do we think about things that already exist, but really get them to communities who would otherwise never use them? And I mean that communities, not just in terms of race, color, things like that, but communities like the identity of having an addiction, right? Yeah, fantastic. That's uh, so much there. Thank you for sharing. You know, I identify so deeply because both my parents had problems with addiction with alcohol growing up. And uh, in particular, watching my mother continue to drink even through progressing through stages of end of life care. And I describe that a little bit in my book. And it's just so hard to watch a family member do that. And in my case, I too, I had to come to addiction treatment sort of in a roundabout way. I thought I was interested in psychiatry because of the brain, but I think I was really looking to understand this part of myself and this part of my family. And it was definitely, it sounds like maybe I had less awareness than you did of what actually drew me to the field, but it was a tough transition in some ways to all that stigma against psychiatry. It's nothing compared to the stigma our patients go through, but it's, uh, it's definitely there. But it's a stigma nonetheless. It's there. Yeah. 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 So you said structural determinants and social determinants of health are cool. <laughs> I think that's probably true. It's a it's a hot topic right now. For people who don't know, what is that? What does that mean? Yeah. So when we're thinking about really, I'll start with the social determinants of health. I love the kind of W8, the World Health Organization definition, and I have kind of truncated it to take it on the life of its own, but really the things in the environment that really influence someone's health outcomes that are really changeable, right? So things like where you eat, work, play, pray, and live, right? Eat, work, pray, play, and live. So what are those kind of social factors that really impact health, no matter if you go to the doctor every single day? And those are things like, where do you, like, what's your zip code, right? What neighborhood do you live in? And that neighborhood, like, what do you have access to? Like, do you have a Whole Foods? Do you just have a bodega? Because I'm in the city now to get your food from. Do you have a, you know, place where you can actually access healthy foods? Or do you just have corner stores? And then thinking about, like, green spaces, you know, I really genuinely didn't uh, understand the importance of having a green space until I became a fur mama and having my dogs. And I was like, wow, in certain areas where I've lived, yeah. And sometimes majority Black areas, like there wasn't even a park you could go to. And I'm like, wait a minute, you know, I need somewhere. So those are when we're thinking about the social determinants of health beyond someone's own desire to take care of themselves, beyond their ability to engage or follow doctor's orders, 
What are those other things, their housing, their environment, their access to food, their access to ability to practice if they want to practice spirituality that have just as an important impact on how they are able to live and, and access health? Those are really the social determinants. So I hope that, that that's helpful. And then when we break down like structures, it's like, what are those facets that elit, that um, exist in these social environments that really dictate how someone's going to be able to access health? So those are things like systems, right? Systems of care. So we think about what are major systems, like the educational system. <laughs> that is a huge structure, if you may, that will provide information or opportunities to really determine how people are able to advocate for themselves, right? Thinking about another big, big system or structure is healthcare systems. You know, they dictate like even what addiction clinics or primary healthcare clinics exist in certain areas. So those are kind of the structures. And so when kind of going back to that decision of, or that experience, because I hadn't made the decision yet, but the experience of working in the South Bronx, and I didn't have that language, quite honestly, to say, okay, these are social factors, conditions, and structural systems that are intersecting to affect how mostly Puerto Rican people in the South Bronx were able to access care. I didn't have that language, but I could see that there were not the same opportunities from a medical system standpoint in the South Bronx that my colleagues had when I was having rotations in the Upper East Side. The availability of even things like suboxone, methadone, it just wasn't the same, you know? And so that's what we mean about the structures, which is different from like, do you have a park in your area? Things like that. Sure. Yeah. And so how do you study it now? Tell us a little more about what your focus is now, what you're working on, what you're looking to change through your work. Yeah, thank you. An opportunity to talk about my research. You're going to have to stop <laughs> me because I love to talk about it. Okay. So the way that I think about, so that I have a lab, I don't usually say lab because many of the people that I take care of or try to engage in research projects that I'm on, that whole term lab is extremely stigmatizing. So I'm very mm. particular about language, but for your listeners, I'm just using that because when people think of research, they usually think of a research lab. And what we call ourselves is the Jordan Wellness Collaborative because to me, the ethos is working together with everyone. So like researchers, academicians, people who use drugs, people in recovery, people who are not in recovery, key stakeholders, community members, faith members, all these folks together to think about how to access wellness. And I think about wellness being like, further on the spectrum than just health, because you can have a healthy body, healthy mind, but what do you really need to be well? What are all those components? So that's kind of the reasoning behind the Jordan Wellness Collaborative. And our overarching principles is to really think about increasing knowledge, providing resources, and providing education so that people can make informed decisions. And so I focus on those who have mental health and substance use disorders. I study all types of addiction earlier in my career, but right now I am myopically focused on substance use disorders and people that have substance use disorders alone or substance use disorders with mental illness and figure out ways of how to engage in patient-centered recovery. What does that look like? And how can I provide tools for people to be able to make those decisions for themselves? And so one of the things that we've learned from doing earlier kind of pilot studies, what's called just listening to people and hearing from folks, focus groups, one-on-one in-depth interviews, is that people in my that I was interfacing with that were mostly folks who have been minoritized because of 
the social classification of race, they were saying like, we don't need any more research on like all the problems that we face. Like we know we're poor. We know that, you know, we have legal problems. We know we're, we are treated differently because how we look like we don't need to see another study about that. And we we're, we don't care about the papers you write, but like we need to understand why has the system evolved, the system of healthcare, right? That structure evolved. So having that understanding, that historical perspective, but then just what are we doing about it? And so just in practical terms, the research that I do is thinking about how do we provide solutions for people who are affected by the social determinants of health and also have addiction. So one of the studies that we're really excited about that's happening now is called the Imani Breakthrough Program. Imani means faith in Swahili. It was given to, that name was given to us by initial people who were involved in the, the focus groups. But they were saying that we want to freely integrate all aspects of our faith, whatever, whatever that may be, whether it be Taoism, Buddhism, Christianity, whatever faith that is, we want to bring that to our understanding addiction. We see it beyond just being a brain disorder. And at the same time, we also want to have practical help with like getting legal charges removed from our record because I can't get a job. And so in that study, we believe that if you integrate addiction treatment, so things like buprenorphine, things like medications for alcohol or tobacco or whatever it may be, access to Narcan for people who have opioid use disorder, things like that. If we integrate that within setting where people have inherent trust, they're able to freely express their faith, that that can be more restorative than going to a doctor and sitting with that doctor in the clinic. And so we have to study that. That's the hypothesis, but now we're testing that. So we're in many different faith institutions myopically focused on Black and Latinx people with opioid and other substance use disorders. But all of the treatment that is provided is done in these faith institutions. And all of the services that are provided in terms of the addiction docs are provided by docs that are from Black and Latinx backgrounds. And we, we do it via telehealth. So nobody feels like the energy of, within this faith institution is kind of interrupted by having a doctor all of a sudden walk in, you know? Mm. But it does sound like, just to clarify, it sounds like the people in the focus groups wanted to integrate their faith and their spirituality with their addiction treatment. So it's not just that they are getting treatment at the place that they also happen to go for their faith community. It sounds like there's an element of spirituality that's brought into the addiction care. Is that right? Can you talk more about like, what is the spirituality how do you think about spirituality in this context? There's been so much written about and there's so many people struggle with even what does spirituality mean to me? Why do I need spirituality in addiction recovery? Or people have a sense of like, oh, I have a sense that spirituality is important to addiction recovery, but I'm not sure how to make sense of it and also reconcile it with a medical model. So let me just give you an example, just very practically of one of the things we do. First of all, it's like, we make it very clear for folks that are interested in participating in the trial, like we're not trying to proselytize. We're not trying to get you to join any particular religion. We're just trying to provide a space that allows you the freedom to invoke or practice your own faith walk in a way that is congruent with treatment. So for one of the trials that's separate from Imani that I was talking about, but there's another trial. Um, and these are both NIH funded, which I'm really proud of. Can let me tell you, less than 1% of NIH funded researchers are Black. So this is a mm. big, big deal. And I'm really, I say that kind of tongue in cheek, but I also feel a great sense of responsibility to really carry out these trials in a really responsible way with taxpayers' dollars because I'm so grateful to have the opportunity so anyway, on one of the NIH-funded trials, it's called ATBC, Addiction Treatment in the Black Community. One of the ways that we concretely integrate 
spirituality with the addiction treatment is that there is this role called a church-based health advisor, and they actually have studied different modules that are focused on helping people minimize their substance use. So it's called computer-based training for cognitive behavioral therapy. And it's been shown, this particular intervention has been shown to decrease substance use across the host of substances in just eight weeks. So that's awesome. But we have these church-based health advisors that take the modules, learn about them themselves, and then think about ways in which this might be able to be integrated into a sense of believing in a higher power. We have meditation that when participants come in, they are are able to participate in meditation. They're able to pray if they want to. We have praise and worship where we sing songs. Participants can lead songs themselves. We actually have these church-based health advisors, like I said, that have the ability to lead songs. And then they do the actual intervention, the participant. And after that, we said what's called, I was raised in the Black Baptist tradition from a child. So we have this thing called testimony. So we allow the participants, if they want to, nobody's forced, but if they want to give a testimony about how their belief in a higher power has allowed them to access joy during that last week. And so that is a powerful experience because people have engaged in these principles of cognitive behavioral therapy. They're understanding how their thoughts can affect their their thinking. Their thinking can affect their behavior and ways to change that. So they're getting those kind of really key points in terms of how to manage their addiction, but also they have the ability to say, I am so happy to be here in this place because God has allowed me to and whatever their testimony is. And then they have other participants who are like, go here, we're so proud of you or whatever. And so that's just practical kind of run through of one of our sessions within these faith institutions that allow us to integrate that quite seemingly. And interestingly, many of the participants, many, meaning 88%, because we actually studied it, already have a faith tradition that they practice. And so they bring that into the space. The majority of are from a kind of Christian normative religion, but there are some that are not. And so what I think is cool about it is that they feel empowered to share a verse or something from their faith institution that, you know, that's not from the Bible, let's just say. And that freedom, I think, is what makes the intervention quite powerful because there's not any judgment or sense of ridicule or being labeled as counterculture if they do that in this intervention. And it's a little bit different than AA. I think it's a lot different, but it's a little bit different in AA in terms of it is integrating actual medication treatment, but also cognitive behavioral therapy, evidence-informed psychotherapeutic techniques that have been shown to decrease substance use. So, you know, we're really proud of it. And, you know, we're in year three for the ATBC study. So let's see how it goes. A couple more years and then we'll, we'll, we'll make sure that people get the results. But I, I'll, that's all I can say. I don't, that's no, fascinating. I don't no, that's great. It's really interesting. It's a good portrayal of how you might integrate spirituality with care. And I, I wasn't expecting to talk this much about spirituality, but it's near and dear to my heart. It's important for my own addiction recovery. And I think for a lot of people's addiction recovery, there's that William Miller, one of the true legends, I think has a, I'm going to mangle it now, but he has some quote, like, there's no such thing as not having a spiritual life. The question is just what is the nature of your spirituality? Amen to that. Exactly. Yep. I can't help but think that there, there are a lot of, say, like physician leaders or policy leaders who really like to make analogies to general mental health conditions like diabetes or to asthma. And you also mentioned before about some of your focus group participants having concerns about the brain disease model or the over-medicalization. And so I think a critic or somebody who is very firmly in that medical frame of advocacy, of discourse or whatever might say, 
why do we have to pray about a mental health condition? What is it about addiction that invokes spirituality? Why is spirituality relevant to addiction? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I love that. And it's a critique, as you can imagine, that I get a lot and at different academic scientific conferences, people are not happy in terms of my expansion beyond just the medical model or medical understanding of addiction. So anyway, I appreciate that. I'll say this and I'll get a little bit more nuanced, but in the same way that I have had to really be in conversation with different faith leaders from across the board of kind of organized religion, I'll I'll say to you is that it's not an either or, it's an and both. And so they're like, you know, well, we don't understand why you think we'll meet medication. All they have to do is pray. Like this is from a faith leader, many faith leaders where I've heard this. Why are you even thinking about medication or some type of psychotherapeutic approach? They won't say that talk therapy, things like that, when all they need to do is pray or they need to atone for their sins or things like that. And I say that we it's not a moral failure. It's not someone sinning or anything like that. But we have to understand that addiction is extremely complex and really dealing with how people have operationalized their ability to care for self or to process past hurts or to deal with actual organic reasons why they are so anxious or they can't focus there are many different ways that we have to intervene in terms of taking care. And we have to really make sure that we're not rejecting the all of the other kind of psychosocial elements of addiction. In the same way that we are more and more in medicine and more and more in medicine, taking a comprehensive holistic approach to things that we historically thought were just medical illnesses like, let's just say the big C, cancer, and realizing that for people who are diagnosed with cancer, it is just beyond radiation and oncology. It's thinking about mindfulness. It's thinking about spiritual-based practices that allow people to have better outcomes when they're dealing with these treatment interventions that can cause a lot of harm. So I'm like, it's not an either or. And if we focus so much on the medical model or focus so much on just the spiritual model where we're minimizing the contribution of both to this nuance. I don't want to say complex, but nuanced diagnoses, I'll just say. The other thing too is like when we focus so much on just a biological basis of addiction, we are discounting how addiction can show up or manifest itself if you don't have access to all of the resources to keep yourself safe. For instance, we can have the exact same substance use disorder, right? Cocaine use disorder can impact biologically me the same that it does another person who is not racialized as Black. Let's just say a white person. But the reality is me as a Black woman with a cocaine use disorder, it will have very different experiences in terms of understanding and engaging with people about their cocaine use disorder than a white man. Because I am part of this narrative of like a crack war, things like that, all of these images that come from the 80s, which a white person may not necessarily be a part of that narrative. And so that impacts even the way I see myself right? In society, those internalized messages, which can actually have physical ramifications in terms of if I'm feeling down, if I'm having some psychological duress, if I'm feeling anxious, if I'm actually being gaslit by folks. So again, we have to be okay with the understanding that biology is a tool, but it's not the entire story. And if we allow people to bring in their understanding of their addiction or their illness or, you know, people don't even want to call it illness, their existence of how they are being in their body, if we allow them to lead, then we can really develop comprehensive treatment plans. 
So that's what I, I say. And, you know, I will always say that's not the whole story, you know, in these scientific conferences. What about we're forgetting about this because we cannot minimize the real data that really shows improvement in mood as a result of what are called spiritual practices. Like you can't argue with that, right? So we have to be able to give credence to what is called non-Western practices that actually provide great benefit. And I try to be open and um, yeah. I also have been around long enough to know, although I still look fabulous, okay? But I've been around long enough to know that the medical model has not served us well. We're still in one of the, the worst crises that we've ever experienced in this country. And we've been, you know, dealing with this medical model. So we have to be okay with changing direction. And I think that the only way that we're going to move forward is for cross collaboration. And it's going to take some of our major leaders within the National Institute of Health other leading system structures to be okay with that ambiguity. Or I don't want to even say ambiguity because I don't think it's confusion, but be okay with the total experience of, of having an addiction. No, well said. I couldn't agree more. It, I can imagine it's a tough, tough task you've set out for yourself to find those points of connection. People but... don't like me. They <laughs> think that my research is racist. Oh my gosh, can you imagine? I was like, what? No. So speaking of racism, I think there's a connection here. You'll probably know the connection better than me, but you said before the talk, you wrote me and you you said, you want to talk about the importance of racial justice and health equity for everyone, not just a selected few. And I wanted to just open it up to you and ask if you could say a little more about what you meant by that, what you had in mind And I wonder if there's a spiritual connection here too. Yeah, no, I love that because I think when people hear anything with race or like racial justice or, you know, anti-racism, it's become so codified that like certain groups of people just totally shut down because they're like, here goes this race thing again, or this is critical race theory, or they're trying to, these liberals are trying to control us. And so in the way of, Martin Luther King, and that I think uh, most people in this country support and understand his ethos. Thinking about racial justice is that, you know, we want to create systems that really all races are able to benefit from and really create equitable opportunities and outcomes. And so if we're able to create systems where no matter if you are racialized as white or black or indigenous, that the system genuinely is working for everyone. I always say it's working for the most, the most other of us all, then those with the most privilege will inherently benefit, right? So I think about social cohesion theory, social identity theory, and like who is prized, what identity is prized of having the most like social capital social privilege in this really world, but let's just focus on the nation, is thinking about like a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant male. But then if you go further away from that ideal identity, if you think about one of my patients who is a transgender Black woman with schizophrenia and cocaine use disorder, like that's a real combination identity of a person that I take care of, right? transgender Black woman with schizophrenia and cocaine use disorder, if we can create a system for that person who doesn't have nearly as much social capital, her humanity is not honored in the way as this white, cis, heterosexual, Anglo-Saxon male, wow, what a robust system will we have if we're able to attend to all of those needs and really make sure that the system is benefiting her in the same way that it would benefit this particular man. And that is when we think about racial justice, right? Creating a system where all races benefit regardless of your other identities. And that goes beyond anti-racism because anti-racism is just saying that like, I reject any system that 
privileges one over the other. But I think our real task as people who are trying to do and work on behalf of the greater good and care about like our society, we want to go beyond anti-racism. It's not just the rejection of the belief or system that structures opportunity for one versus the other, but we actually want to create something in its place that provides benefit for everyone, no matter what your background, no matter how much money you make. And unfortunately, we don't have that system here. It's so unequal. And you don't have to take my word for it. I'm always tell my critics, like, you don't have to believe me, like, just go look at the literature and see who has access to buprenorphine treatment, who actually uses it. It's wealthy white men in particular. So it's like, that is kind of like antithesis of racial justice, but what would it mean to create a system of care if, and this is just one example, we could make sure that everyone who has an opiate use disorder actually has access to, doesn't mean that they will initiate, but at least has access to a medication that we know can save lives. That's just one you know, part. So that's what I'm thinking about racial justice. And another example that I provide is like, how can we make it everyone's business, whether you have a substance use disorder or not, to easily access Narcan? We know we're in an opiate-involved drug overdose crisis, the worst we've ever experienced. So why is it just Narcan for a selective few of people or that there are still pharmacies in this country that don't carry it. What? Why is it the messaging that like it's everybody's part to try and save a life, to understand the sign so that if you see somebody, you can intervene. I remember somebody said to me, and I'll stop talking because I'll go on and on and on about this, but like it was talking about what is the collective goal with all the folks that were working at NASA when it was um, during the time of trying to get the first man to the moon, right? And so you would ask everybody who works there from the aerospace engineer to the maintenance worker or the janitor, what is our goal? And the same response was said by all is get our man safely to the moon, right? And so that when I think about racial justice, it's that collective understanding of the goal is what we want to do, right? Is to make sure that everybody can have access to wellness, regardless of where you come from or where you look like or where you live and all these things. And we're just not there because people see it as like, oh, that's just for folks of color. Like, what does that even mean, you know? And I think that's very much connected, which is why I brought up Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. You know, you have to say the Reverend and the Dr. Martin Luther King is because as a pastor, he very much saw racial justice integral to his, his, his faith, right? That you can't be a person that's connected to the higher power and not feel compelled to end suffering and create systems where everyone can benefit. And um, that's not talked about so much because he was really like anti-oppression, really anti-government at the time of his death. And so those are the principles that I think I try and really draw on or think of my own understanding of my personal relationship with God. It's a tool to bring about liberation for people and access health. Mm -hmm. So, I'm thinking of Nzinga Harrison talks about. You better come on, Nzinga. Wait, I wasn't ready for this. Yes. <laughs> she, I, I just, it just came to my mind. I wasn't thinking of framing it this way, but she talks about racism as an addiction. So yeah. you've been talking a lot about the the systems level and also at the individual level. What I understand from what she talks about, and I know she's working on a book now, is um that, that it's it's poisonous for the person who harbors the racist ideas too. So, you know, I'm wondering, especially because you were talking about the wellness collaborative and wellness as something more than just taking away the negative, like like working with 
racism, undoing racism, going beyond anti-racism? Is that is that part of wellness too? Would you say would you say that that's that's part of everyone's general wellness? Yeah, I mean, listen, I was smelling ear to ear because I knew I was in good company, but I didn't know you know Nzinga. I love her. We worked together. Um, she's a mentor in one of the the programs that I run to help teach folks how to become awesome culturally centered addiction specialists. And love, love, love her. And like you, can't wait about her book release. Okay, so I. You know, I don't think about racism as an addiction. I I don't think about it in that way. I understand the framing of it, but that's not something that that provides clarity or a better understanding of of a system based on race. But what I think is 100% true and kind of really resonates with me is this thought of how harmful really racism is and can be, especially for the person who is the perpetrator of racist acts, right? And so I think about the young man who identified himself as a white supremacist who was very planned and organized and carrying out the execution of all of those predominantly Black people in the um, grocery store, the Buffalo killing in Buffalo, New York. And think about not only was that fatal in terms of his racist ideals leading to the death of innocent folks, for sure, but also thinking about the psychological toll that that had in terms of his ability to not have any sense of understanding the greater world because he's so focused on this very ill-informed notion that he has to take out people who are not white, right? And the superiority of they're trying to take over and take replacement theory. And now his life is over in every sense of the, you know, understanding of that. No access to be able to come back from that. And so, yeah, it can be extremely poisonous. And I think that harboring more racist ideals and really breathing that limits the opportunities that people who engage in this thinking could be doing in terms of using that for the greater good, not just for people who are minoritized, but for the greater good of all of us. What could that focus, in his case, result in for good, not for evil, not for hate? And that is so tragic because it takes away potential innovation, creativity, opportunity, room for collaboration, learning. Like one of the things that I love about the field of addiction medicine is like, I'm humble every single day. I learn from people who are very different from myself and we're coming into contact because we are trying to deal with this substance use disorder that has devastated their lives in a serious way. But I come in contact with counter stereotypic people that would never be so intimate with, but I get to learn from, you know, and like we figure out how to do it together. And I think that just focusing on how one person is better than another really takes away from our ability to to really think about ways in which we can learn from one another. And I don't mean that in a utopian way. Like I really genuinely mean it because I have experienced that. And again, I always say, you don't just have to take it from me, Dr. Jordan, but if you look at companies where they have made a deliberate effort, and a lot of this research comes from the business world where they're seeing, they care about the bottom line. How are we performing? So places like MSNBC, places where they have done better because they are focused on bringing people from all different walks of life, different backgrounds, and learning from one another. Diversity begets diversity and really thinking about collaboration. So it's really tragic. And I, I, 
if we're able to, if your listeners take nothing away from me, although I hope that they take a lot of good nuggets, but if they take nothing away, truly, I want us to understand that racism really genuinely is made up. It doesn't mean that it has real consequences, but the whole notion of one race being better than the other is just a distraction from what is really going on and from really figuring out where do we have agreement and similarities in order to get the goal. And in the case of addiction, we agree that being controlled by a substance or always thinking about that and ruining relationships, opportunities is not a good thing. And so how can we collectively do better? And I think being distracted by a system that preferentially advantages others is is just that a distraction. And I think we need to focus our efforts on accessing wellness through this, you know, systematic way, um, making sure everybody can benefit. And I think, let me just say, because I don't want people to say, oh, Dr. Jordan says, forget focusing on race. No, quite conversely, the reason why I focus on race is because I know that many people who are not part of that ideal identity that I was talking about, that they're just totally forgotten. I mean, look what happened in the opioid crisis. Look what happened. Even me, even me, Carl, even me, when I think about someone who has opioid use disorder, my mind goes to like Mike, whoever Mike is, but like Mike is like a hardworking blue collar man who got addicted through pills. And it's like, I know better than that. But I have been influenced and socialized to minimize the very identity of indigenous folks whose rates are higher. <sighs> so that's powerful. Thank you for being honest about the way those biases still exist in you. And I, I love the way you describe the gifts of humility and how racism gets in the way of that humility, that we have so much to learn from just being in connection and conversation with others just naturally. And it makes me think, it, it makes me think of one of the grab bag questions I had for you in terms of thinking about other people and other cultures. What, what did you learn about mental health and addiction treatment from Sierra Leone? Well, you can't, you better come on Sierra Leone. Okay, Carl, you did your homework now. See, listen, you are, you are serious. You're a professional. You try to pretend <laughs> you were just some guy with a little, you know, platform you did your homework. So I appreciate that for you so much. Flattery will get you everywhere. So let me tell you, I, I talk to so many people and they don't bring in the Sierra Leone work. And I'm so grateful for you doing that because I, wow, so much I've learned and it has really transformed the way that I actually practice medicine. So one of the things that you I must say to you is that I feel like when people know better, they do better. And people really try to do the best they can with the information they have. And the reason why I preface this is because I cannot paint a broad brush of how all people in West Africa, Sierra Leone is a a West African country, how all people in West Africa think about mental illness and addiction. This is one place, but it's significant because what I found is that it is a shared experience. So I went there because when I was in medical school, one of my really good friends at the time was really trying to figure out how he can be a responsible citizen and use his trust fund money to do something really good with. Okay, shout out to the fact that I have people who had trust fund money because I did not have trust fund money. So that's already just a privilege. Okay, Yashiva, thank you for introducing me to folks with trust fund money. Anywho, So he had this trust fund money and one of our classmates was from Sierra Leone. And our classmates said to him, if you really want to bring about doing good, you should go to my home where I grew up because there's such little infrastructure after the war, we need help. And so Dan created, Dan Kelly, the physician, he created the Well Body Institute with his trust fund money. And it was really focused in the Kono district, the Sierra Leone, which if many people saw the Leonardo DiCaprio movie, Blood Diamonds, that is the site of 
really diamond mining and and Sierra Leone. And it was devastated. So many people amputated from the war. So many people, medical illnesses. And I was interested in psychiatry at the time. And I said, Dan, you've been so successful, so successful from internal medicine standpoint, but can I do anything in mental health? And he's like, Ayana, come, because there's such little infrastructure. And being over there, I saw similar to what we were talking about, we're coming full circle with spirituality. Most of the care for people who had mental illness and addiction was being provided by spiritual healers because the belief was that you were somehow cursed with an evil spirit or a family member cursed you or you were cursed by a community member or you've done something wrong that now you are paying the price for that. And so they very much saw it as a spiritual weakness, curse, evil that had to be undone by either imam, a faith healer, or a spiritual healer. But when I went there, it was very tough for me to see people. Again, the community really we're trying to take good care, but seeing people with what we would think of like a stimulant use disorder or somebody with major depressive disorder chained to beds for just extremely lengthy periods of time, sometimes months, in some cases, even a year. And so that helped me to see that people are not trying to behave in a way that is not affirming of someone's humanity, but they're trying to do their best with the information and resources they have is to take care of their loved one. And so just having conversations and understanding that, and then also humbly providing other ways of considering what a substance use disorder and actually using the biological model, not as an explain all panacea, but as a tool to say, like, listen, there are actually things that are happening in the brain that lead to someone wanting to smoke brown brown, which is what was being used, which is smokeless gunpowder and cocaine mixed together, which was a substance that was introduced to the Civil War. There are actually things that are happening that lead to this behavior and it's not evil. And then really thinking about ways in which, again, we're not totally dismissing psychosocial interventions, but showing how community care and having group settings and processing together can actually help someone access help, right? Instead of being chained to a bed by themselves for extended periods of time. So I learned that. I learned compassion. I learned not to judge and not look at people as like, crazed because they are doing things differently, but have an understanding of the intent behind that. I also learned that how many women especially suffer in silence because there's such stigma of just having a depression, forget about substance use disorder, but depression that, you know, women were trying to end their lives by ingesting caustic substances because they didn't want to be bad influence on the family structure. And so I'm so happy to say now that through education, we did some radio programming over there where people could just call in and ask questions. Through a lot of really targeted educational segments, there was such an interest in learning more and doing better. And now Because the first lady at the time was directly impacted by mental health and addiction, she has really elevated the conversation that there are now way more humane treatments and mental health offerings in Sierra Leone. So, yeah, I learned a lot. I learned that substances vary from culture to culture. I never thought that I would be researching something called brown brown. I never thought that I would understand polio, which is the natural palm wine that the miners would drink 
gallons at a time. And I'm like, well, no, lo- no wonder why you're hallucinating. You're not hallucinating because you're a crazed man, which is what they would call people who had some addiction problems. But because you just ingested gallons of this polio and it's a psychoactive substance. So I learned so much about the kind of regional variability in substances, but yet some of those core behaviors, craving, withdrawal, time spent wanting to use the substance, activities given up are the same, which again, you know, ties us. So anyway, that was life changing. I've since been to Sierra Leone many, many times and I have a really close friend who named her daughter after me. Her name is little Ayana that I'm in close contact with. And yeah, I have family over there, Safi and Dabo and people that I care deeply for. And again, that goes to the point of expanding my mind to being open to learning and not just thinking, oh, these poor people or whatever, although they're extremely, extremely affected by the ills of poverty. You know, that is true. And what they do have that I think we need to tap in more here is the power of spirituality, the power of their faith and community. Because when we talked about how we need to bring folks with addiction and mental illness into the fold, like they got it. It wasn't like, you know, they were very much embracing of that. Whereas here, we're like, oh, those addicts keep them over there. <laughs> it's like, yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, you, one theme is you, you seem to have been such a student of humanity, you know, from Pittsburgh to the South Bronx to Yale and back. You really learn a lot from your patients and your community partners. And then you're able to, to turn that around and then give that education back in a way that really makes a difference. And that's really inspiring. And I really want to thank you for that work. Oh, thank you for that. Because sometimes I'm like going from here, there, everywhere. And it's like, Ayana, what are you doing? But comments like that, really, it makes me feel good. Or I'll get a random you know, email like, Dr. Jordan, we appreciate you. We see you out here. And thank you. Yeah, I love that. And I, I hope that I can continue to make a difference in some way. You know, that is really, as I'm getting older, I think about what is my legacy? What is the impact? And I want people to feel like I've done things with the privilege and the resources that I've had and honored stories, you know? Well, plenty of time, plenty of runway to go. I look forward to seeing where you head. Do you have any parting words, any request of the audience perhaps, or just other final thoughts? Yeah, I I think that one of the things I will say is just really try and have compassion for one another. No one chooses to develop an addiction. No one chooses to have a substance use disorder. And so really thinking through how can I extend kindness, compassion, and understanding to help someone on their road to recovery is really, really important. I think the other thing I would say is that even if you are not directly impacted by this drug overdose crisis that we're facing, really try and understand how you might access Narcan because somebody in your circle will need it, whether you think so or not, and make, making sure that you have access to, to that and how to use it. And then finally, that recovery is possible. It absolutely is not an aspirational goal. People in recovery do it every single day and how we interact and support those in recovery really matters. So hashtag no judgment. And that's what I'll say. That's fantastic. Thanks so much, Ayana. This has been a real pleasure and honor. I'm sure a lot of people got a lot from this. So thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for your platform. Appreciate you. That's my interview with Dr. Ayana Jordan. I hope you enjoyed it. There's a few things I wanted to highlight and amplify here. The first is I love her discussion of the social determinants of health. Very simply, the things in environment that influence someone's health outcomes that are changeable. And the way she broke them down are where you eat, where you work, where you pray, where you play, where you live. And how these are different from structures. Things like The healthcare system is a structure. The educational system is a structure. Structural determinants and social determinants of health related, but importantly different as well. 
I also love her discussion of racial justice and how that expands outward to an understanding of interconnectedness. How can we make it everyone's business to have access to wellness? In the simple title of her work, The Wellness Collaborative. Finally, she mentioned getting Narcan. That was one of her major takeaways. And I, I think this is important. And it strikes me that it's not something we've discussed a great deal in a practical way on the show. I understand that some of you are clinicians and even researchers in the field, but others might be wondering, where do I get Narcan? How do I get Narcan? What, does it show up on my medical records somehow, or do I get in trouble for it? These are really common and important clarifications. Uh, there are many, many ways expanding every day about how to get access to this life-saving overdose prevention medication. So I'll put some information, at least for the United States, in the show notes if you're interested in other places or other resources, please drop me a line. I'm always happy to get emails, especially about things you're looking to amplify and share to help people struggling with addiction and recovery. So once again, you can find more information about that and many of the other topics we discovered in the show notes at carlericfisher.com. There you can also sign up for my email list and immediately get a free guide I made about the many pathways to recovery. And then you'll also stay up to date with the latest episodes, show notes, other writings. You can find all of that at carlericfisher.com. And on a personal note, it's been just about a year since I started this podcast, and I wanted to say thank you for listening. I started it as sort of a lark. It was an experiment. It was just a natural extension of what I was doing in my own writing and research, and I didn't know how it would go and how it would land. And I'm just so grateful and happy to be in touch with all of you, the folks who write in with guest suggestions or questions or other comments. So I just wanted to say thank you for that. And there's no question in my mind that I'll keep going. And um, I look forward to being in touch and bringing you some more guests in the coming weeks. So if you're finding the podcast useful, please help me get the word out. You can subscribe on your podcast player, leave a rating and review, especially on iTunes, on Apple Podcasts, and send this episode to just one other person you think would benefit. Thanks so much for listening. And I'll talk to you again soon. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. It isn't medical or clinical advice. The content isn't a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. If you have questions, please consult a medical professional. Conflicts of interest are an important topic in addiction and recovery. For now, this is just me bringing these conversations to you ad-free for their own sake. I do have a list of disclosures about my work and positions on my website, which I will keep updated.